Hey, uh, let me ask you something. Uh, this is week three of our marriage series. So we've been doing this a couple weeks now. We've done marriage series before in the past. A lot of you have been here for those. Let me ask you something. How many of you by now think you know a little something about love and marriage? Raise your hand. If you know a little something, you don't know everything, but you know something. Raise your hand real high, real high. Most people. All right. How many of you still, every once in a while, fail to do the right thing? Anybody? Yeah, more hands, even more hands, right? So there's, there's knowing, right? There's knowing a little bit, and there's doing the right things, right? Would you agree that those are two different things? Yeah, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you're married, I want to do a little exercise. If you're married, if you're, if you're single, if you're widowed, if you're divorced, I'm sorry for this. This will just take a minute. But if you're married, what I want you to do is just picture in your mind uh, what it was like when you were dating your current spouse, all right? What was it like? How did you feel around him or her? What, what emotions go through your mind when you think about it? What, what did he or she look like? Was it different than they look now? What, what did you like? What did you not like? What, what kind of things did you do together? You got a picture there in your head? Now, let me ask you, how different is that from now? Is it different? For most people, it's probably different. If you've been married uh, more than a couple of years, and especially if you've had kids, right, your marriage probably looks a little different than it did when it was new or when you were dating. Maybe it's better. A lot of people, it's better. You know, it just gets better and better. For some people, it's not. It's just different, you know, and as couples stay together longer, they learn more about one another. They grow more comfortable around one another. Your relationship tends to change, doesn't it? It changes. It can change for the better. It can change for the worse, but it changes. The way we interact changes. The things we do together change. The things we talk about change. The feelings we have can change. I'm not saying it's all bad. Sometimes it's really, really good, but they can be different. I remember... um, my wife and I have two daughters, and uh, Grace is 12, almost 13. Audrey is 11. And uh, when they were very young, we had a hard time, as many of you young parents probably can relate to, getting away um, for a date. And so really, I don't think the whole time that Grace was an only child, which was about two years, I don't think we ever just left her with a babysitter and went on a date. And so after Audrey was born and she uh, got to six or nine months, we felt comfortable leading her with a sitter. I remember going on our first date, my wife Benita and I, and we were at a restaurant and um, we couldn't go two minutes without talking about, I wonder what the kids are doing right now. You know, I wonder what the babysitter, I wonder if she's doing okay. Do you think everybody's okay, right? Can you relate to that? And like every time we did start a conversation, uh, you know, the waitress would come and, and say, uh, you know, do you want tomatoes on your sandwich? And we're like, if you like to talk to tomatoes. You know, you start singing VeggieTales songs, right? Because that's what you know. That's what you do when you're a young parent and you've got all these things and the kids become the center of your life. And so it changes, right? It changes. After you're married for a couple years, it starts to change. So I want to get this conversation started. Just a couple of really light questions uh, to start this morning. I want to ask you, how many of you are planning someday to cheat on your spouse? Anybody raise your hand? I'm not raising my hand because I am. I'm just... As an example, nobody. Okay. How many of you, you know, you don't want to have an affair? Anybody get a little thing on the side there? No, nothing, nobody? No? Okay. How many of you would like to get married someday, maybe pop out a couple of kids, and then go through a really bitter, ugly, nasty divorce? Anybody? No. Right? It's nobody's five-year plan, right? Nobody plans to go through that. So here's the thing. I ask those questions. None of you say you're planning to have an affair. None of you say you're planning to go through a divorce. But statistics tell us that many of us will do just that. We'll, we'll have an affair or we'll go through a divorce or both. Why is that? Well, one reason, I believe, honestly, is the way that we date. The way that we have relationships now, the way we do single life, prepares us very well for divorce. 
I mean, in fact, we don't do a very good job of preparing people for marriage as a society, but I think we do a really, really good job today of helping people practice being divorced. Here's what I mean about this. Think about this, all right? There was once a day when certain things were reserved for marriage, right? I mean, things like sharing our bodies with one another, sharing a bed, having a a toothbrush at somebody's house, right? Living together and so forth, right? Those things were things we did after we had a ceremony, right? We, we, We make a commitment, we make a promise, we take a vow, then we move in together, then we start having sex, then we share a sink and, and smell each other's morning breath after the ceremony, right? But people now, let's be honest, they play house, right? We play house, they pretend to be married, we do all these things without really making a commitment to one another. And so when things get hard, what do you do? We take your toothbrush and you go home, right? And if you've done that to one or two people, or six or eight, it starts to become really easy just to take your toothbrush and go home, right? It's get really, really good at divorce. Society's trained us really well for that. What society hasn't done is taught us the value of holding on. It it, it doesn't do a very good job of teaching us what it means that even when times get hard, okay, even when the going gets tough, how valuable it is, even when we think we've fallen out of love, to hold on. Right? There's nothing really in our society that trains us for how to do that. There's, there's nothing I can think of other than running, okay, which I'm a runner, other than running that teaches us to persevere when times get hard. Now, many of you I know are facing a difficult time in your marriage right now. Uh, many of you who will be married one day, I want to tell you, there are going to be bumps in the road. There are going to be times uh, where the normal logic will be, your friends will tell you, even uh, culture and media will tell you, It's time to pick up your toothbrush and go home. But today, what I want to do is I want to take a look at a story from Scripture that I think teaches us the opposite. And it's a story that's really difficult to read. It's difficult to understand. um, But it's also very beautiful in the redeeming quality that, that God has for us. And I think what we'll see is so often that whatever our friends tell us to do, whatever society is telling us to do, God has something completely different in mind for us. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them to the book of Hosea. It's probably a part of the Bible you don't read very often. Uh, Hosea is in a section of the Bible called the Minor Prophets in the Old Testament. If you need to use the table of contents, I won't hold that against you. That's fine. Um, But if you've got your tablet or your phone with you, you can open your Bible there too. Uh, We're going to talk about this story. We're going to read the story today of a a man, a prophet by the name of Hosea and a woman named Gomer. Surprise, 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 right? If you're over 35, there's only one Gomer that you know, probably. If you're under 35, you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, and that's okay. But, but what an unfortunate name for a young lady, right? Now, Gomer, uh, this, this story happens more than 700 years before Jesus came along. It's a very prosperous time, actually, in the nation of Israel. So we read through the Old Testament. We don't see a lot of times where Israel is prospering, but at this time, about 760 years, actually, before Jesus is born, the nation of Israel is prospering. Now, but as we see often in Scripture, and as we see also in society, when there's a time of financial increase, we often see a time of spiritual decrease, and that's what's happening right now in Israel. And, and uh, here's what's happening in Israel. It's breaking God's heart. And so he's going to send a prophet, uh, a prophet, a man by the name of Hosea. Um, but instead of preaching God's message like most prophets do, Hosea is being called to live God's message. And so here's what we're going to see. Hosea 1, 
verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Okay, we're going to come back to that. But this uh, whole story is an analogy, uh, Hosea and Gomer, uh, for the way God is feeling about the nation of Israel right now. And he's saying, I'm, I have an adulterous nation. And so to show them that, I want you to go marry an adulterous wife. Okay, we'll talk about that word in a minute. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblame, another, again, speaking of sitcoms. Everybody know Deblame? You remember Deblame from sitcoms? Fantasy Island? Deblame! Deblame, right? Okay, that's terrible. Sorry. Married Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, that word adulterous in, that, in verse 2, that word adulterous wife is a really strong word. It can actually be translated as a harlot or a prostitute. And so here's the question. Why would God take this young, promising prophet and ask him to go marry a prostitute? I mean, whether she was a prostitute or a harlot or just an adulterous wife, the truth is we know that this wasn't Gomer's first rodeo, right? And unfortunately, we're going to see it. It's not going to be her last. Well, there are many layers to this story. There are layers that we don't have time to fully peel back. But one of the things that God wants to do through Hosea, as I said, was to show his people, the people of God, how they have been unfaithful to God. And so this story, and I want to be clear, this is not just a story Uh, This is documented from real people. This actually happened. This is something that God uh, told Hosea to do, and it really happened. But in this case, Hosea is kind of the God figure, okay? And Gomer represents the people of God who've cheated on him, who've rejected him for other gods time and time again. So here's what happens. They get married, and then life happens for these newlyweds. You know how that works, right? Gomer gives birth to a son. They have uh, their first son together. And just to put it in today's terms, life goes on. I mean, Hosea gets busier. He's got a booming ministry as a young prophet. He's at work all the time. He never helps around the house. Gomer feels like he never listens. She puts on some baby weight. She's kind of letting herself go. He's feeling neglected. She's feeling trapped. They're not meeting each other's needs anymore. Things are not going well for this couple. Then one day, something happens. And again, in today's terms, Gomer logs onto the computer, gets a Facebook message from an old flame, or uh, she decides to get back in shape, and she gets matched up with this really hunky personal trainer, or she goes to work, you know, to do something to fill her time, and there's this guy who's really nice, and he listens to her. He actually cares about what she has to say, and she falls into a trap. And it's a trap. Listen, this is a trap that all of us are prone to fall into. It's the most common marriage misconception that we see, and it's this. And this is in your notes if you want to do it, if you want to follow along. The the most common marriage misconception is this. What I'm missing is better than what I have. Right? Hosea 2.5. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me food, my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. She believes that what she's missing is better than what she has. In other words, I've got a pretty good guy here. I mean, he came and took me when a lot of other guys wouldn't take me in, but he's not really able to give me everything I want. And there's this other guy, and he can give me those things, my food and my olive oil and my water and my linen and my wool. So why shouldn't I just leave here and go over there? 
You've heard of the 80-20 rule probably. Everybody know the 80-20 rule? And it probably looks something like this that uh, it says basically you know, 20% of the people control 80% of the wealth in any given society or, or, or 20% of the people in any company do 80% of the work, right? And however you've seen it uh, laid out, you probably always think you're in the 20% or doing all the 80%, right? But, but, but here's, here's how this works in marriage. In a decent marriage, a really, really good spouse can meet 80% of your needs, And then there's this other 20% that they don't always meet, that go unfulfilled. It's impossible. We said this week one. It's impossible for anyone to meet 100% of somebody else's needs. In fact, if you want to set a marriage up for failure, one way to do it is to expect your spouse, your husband, your wife, to meet all of your needs, right? A sure way to set your marriage up for failure. Not going to happen. But, But what happens is this. When we've got our spouses meeting 80% of our needs and there's another 20% still being unfulfilled, we become so focused on the 20%, right, that's not being met. Can anybody relate to this? We, we become so focused on the 20% and we forget about the 80% that is being met. And so we can be fooled into going elsewhere to another person who can meet that 20%. I mean, if you take a good, hard look at your marriage, if you're married right now, if you take a good, hard look at your marriage, there's a pretty good chance that your spouse is delivering at an 80% rate. I mean, really good rate. They're they're doing a great job. But maybe you thought of bailing to go to someone else who can deliver that 20%. You know, we're willing to trade what we know and what we love, or at least what we once loved, for that 20%. But, but I want to tell you, that, that 20% guy, he's got his own 20%. That, that other woman, she's got her own 20%. And we never, ever see that until we buy the lie. What I'm missing is better than what I have. Well, that's what Gomer does. She buys the lie. Her, her lovers are better providers, or Hosea wasn't on his game, whatever. The lovers are more exciting. So she trades the 80% for the 20%. And I have to tell you that in a room this size, there's a good chance that, that some of you are doing that now. Somebody in this room, maybe multiple people, are trading that 80% that your spouse is giving you right now for the 20% on the outside. And any time I talk to couples who are in an affair or where one had an affair, this is almost always how it got started. I met this guy at work. We just had so much in common. Or, or this girl at the gym, we had so much in common. And the things they have in common, to me, seem ridiculous. It's like she likes to play golf and my wife doesn't. Or you know, he likes to watch rom-coms and my husband won't turn off the TV long enough to know Ryan Reynolds from Ryan Gosling. You know, and, and we, but, but he does, or, you know, we, we both have so much in common. We like to have forbidden sex and you can't do that with your wife because it's not forbidden anymore once you're married, you know, but the, you know, so we've got so much in common, but my question is always, how is that so? I, I mean, you've been married for eight, 12, 15 years. You've got two, three, four kids together. You've been through love and joy and hurt and tragedy and fun. You live in the same house in the same address, in the same neighborhood, in the same city. How can you have more in common with a coworker than that? Well, you don't, but what you're seeing is you're seeing the 20%, right? And that's what Gomer did. She bought the lie. And Well, there's definitely not consensus among biblical scholars about how this played out, okay? There's some debate, I want to tell you, in, this, in the biblical scholar community. The scripture implies that Gomer went out and slept around and got pregnant, and she had a daughter, you know, God told Hosea to name her Lo-Ruhamah, which means unloved. And then she did it again, and she had a son, and God told Hosea to name him Lo-Ami, which means not my son, not my true father. Sorry, not my true father. Again, God is using this real-life situation to express his heartbreak over the nation of Israel. 
and the people who have walked away from him, who have cheated on him. And so here's what happens. When we do this to God, we do this to God all the time. We commit spiritual adultery on God, right? And here's what happens. He generally has two responses. When we walk away from God, when we cheat on God, we turn our backs on God, he generally has two responses. And the first is this, and we'll see this, is righteous anger. Righteous anger. Hosea 2.8. God is talking to Hosea and says, She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Now, Baal was another god that they would sometimes make offerings to. He says, therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens, my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. Do you hear the righteous anger in that passage? It's coming from a God who's jealous for you. He desires a relationship with you. And when you turn your back on him, his heart aches for you. Can you almost hear him in these verses saying, fine, you want to do life without me? Go see how that works out. You know, you want to put somebody else at the center of your marriage besides me? Let me know how that goes for you. All right, I'll be right over here if you need me. And then he says this, he says the very last part of that verse, he says, no one will take her out of my hands. He says, my people are mine. The enemy can't have them. The world can't have them. We have a God who is willing to fight for us. We have a God who always steps in the battle for us. He lays down the law. He says, no one will take her from my hands. And husbands, if you find your marriage at a crossroads, it may be time for you to fight for your marriage. Wives, If you find yourself at a crossroads, it may be time for you to develop a righteous anger inside of you that says, I'm willing to fight for my marriage. So while maybe society has trained us to take our toothbrush and go home, maybe that's what your parents did. Maybe that's what your in-laws did. But you need to draw a line in the sand and say, no, this stops with me. I'm not just going to take my toothbrush and go home. This is not going to end. It may end in divorce, but if so, it's not going to be because of me. Because I'm going to fight for my marriage. No one will take you from my hands. But if we just get stuck on anger, we don't get very far, do we? We can see this in the next response from God. The second response that God has in spiritual adultery is this. As unbelievable as it is, God's response to our unfaithfulness is unfailing love. Skip down to verse 14. He says, therefore, now I'm going to allure her. I'm going to work hard to win her back. I'll lead her into the wilderness. Your version may say the desert. God says, I'm going to lead her. I'm going to win her back, okay, by luring her into the driest, most desolate place I can find, the desert, the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. There, I will give her back her vineyards, right? After you go through the desert, God says, I'm going to give you back the vineyards, the fertile ground, and we'll make the valley of Achor, a door of hope. Now, the word Achor here, the valley of Achor, that word Achor means trouble. If you see that, what it means literally is that God says he will make the valley of trouble into a door of hope. He, he can use our troubles to show us his unfailing love. So basically, we can see there are two ways to have a great marriage. If you want to have a great marriage, there are two ways to do it. The first one is this. Do everything right all the time, all right? If you and your spouse both do that, try it. 
Okay? If you and your spouse both do that, if you do everything right all the time, you will have a great marriage. So realistically, there's one way to have a great marriage, and it's this. When you find yourselves in the valley of Achor, in the valley of trouble, you've got to walk through it together until you find the door of hope. Now, what does that mean? It means when you mess up, you confess. You apologize. You repent. You return to God. You cry together. You hug. You cry some more. You let God break your heart and conform you to the likeness of Jesus. You walk through the valley of trouble. You don't grab your toothbrush. You grab your spouse's hand. And you say, we're going through this together. And you walk through it together until you find the door of hope. And some of you right now, I know that you're in the valley of Achor. Your marriage, you find yourself in a valley of trouble. Your relationship, you just don't see any hope. I'm here to tell you today, there is always hope with God. There is always hope with God. I need you to understand that, that your present troubles can lead you to a place of hope. Because the same Holy Spirit that, that raised Jesus from the dead, you need to understand, Jesus was a person who walked the earth and was killed bodily dead. And the Holy Spirit brought him back from the grave. That's why we're here. That's why we're here on Sunday morning. That's why we celebrate these things because there is a Holy Spirit who has the power to bring people back from the dead, to bring things back from the dead. And if he can bring Jesus back from the dead, he can bring your marriage out of the valley too. And God is getting ready to give us the how. All right, through the rest of this story of Hosea and Gomer, I told you this is a tough story. And it's about to get harder with what God is going to tell Hosea. So you've got this situation. You've got a man who went and married an adulterous wife. He knew what he was getting. The adulterous wife, she was who she thought we thought she was. She walks away. She goes and has an affair, has two other kids. And here's what God's going to tell Hosea, Hosea 3.1. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and she is an adulteress. Can we just stop right here and acknowledge the craziness of this command? I mean, have you seen the way she's sleeping around? Have you seen what she's been doing to me? And you want me to go show her love? How ridiculous does this seem? I'm not even sure I feel love anymore. And some of you today, you line right up with that. Maybe your spouse has had an affair. Maybe it's not even that. You just don't feel like you love your spouse anymore. The honeymoon is over. The spark is gone. It seems like everything that brought you together in the first place isn't there anymore. And now there's really no reason to stay. And yet God is commanding you through this passage, through uh, the man, the person of Hosea, to go show love to your spouse. How is that possible? I I can't even find it in my emotions. Maybe you're thinking to love my spouse right now, to love my husband right now, to love my wife. Why would God command me to go and show him love or show her love? How can he? How can he command me that if I can't even feel it? Well, look at the second half of verse 1. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Just as right now, God is loving us, even though we don't deserve it. Even as we sometimes turn our backs on him, even as we continue to worship things of this world, God says, you can go do the same. How? Well, it's not possible until we realize this. Love isn't a feeling. Love is an action, right? Love, love, as John Mayer said, as Isaac sang, love is a verb. Let me show you what I mean. Let me show you from scripture. John 13, one. 
It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, what does this mean? He loved them to the end. We can tell from the context of this verse what it meant for Jesus to love his disciples to the end. Because right after this, what Jesus is going to do is he takes off his robe and he wraps the towel around his waist and he starts washing the feet of his disciples. It's, it's a dirty job. It's one that in that time was reserved for the lowest of all the servants. And yet their master, their leader, their teacher, Jesus, did it for them. He decided to serve them. When the Bible says that he decided to show them the full, or he loved them to the end, what it meant was he served them to the end. Love is an action. We can love out of obedience is what this passage is telling us. We can love out of discipline. Because it's not a feeling, it's an action. God wouldn't command it if we couldn't do it, right? You say, I don't feel love. How can God command me to go feel love? He said, go show love. In the New Testament book of Revelation, Jesus is talking to the seven major churches in the world at the time. It's all captured by the apostle John in the book of Revelation. And and he's writing a a message to each of these churches. And in the church to Ephesus, Jesus says, you have lost your first love. You've walked away from the one you used to love. And then he gives him a remedy for that. In Revelations 2.5, it says, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. He says, even if you don't feel like loving, you can go back and do the things you used to do. So at the beginning of the service, I ask you to think back about your newlywed days. If that looked drastically different for you, if that looked drastically better for you from where you are now, let me ask you, what did you used to do that you don't do anymore? You know, have you lost that part of your identity that says you're a friend and lover to your spouse? I got to tell you guys, when you were dating, you didn't really like to watch the Gilmore Girls, right? You did it because your girlfriend, your fiance, your wife wanted you to. And so you sat down and you did that. You loved them out of discipline, right? Ladies, you didn't really want to watch football. In fact, you don't do it anymore. But you did it back then because you did it out of discipline. You did it out of love. You wanted to serve them in that way, right? I mean, once we have kids, especially, we can lose that part of us that says, I'm a lover, I'm a friend to my spouse. We become mom or we become dad. We forget that we're also husband and wife and lover and encourager and dater. We we said it before in this church, we'll say it all the time, but the truth is that right feelings follow right actions. Go back and do the things you did at first. I want to tell you how this story ends. Uh, or at least how it goes on. God tells Hosea, go per- pursue his immoral wife. Go show your love to her again. And this is what he does. He, he takes his own money and he purchases her out of prostitution. Which is exactly what God did for us. In fact, another verse in scripture where it calls out love as an action is Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shed his blood to buy us back. While we were adulterous, while we were still away from him, he loved us by acting and sending his son Jesus to die in his place. Now, we don't know how the marriage of Hosea and Gomer ended, how it went after this, but my guess is, okay, my suspicion is that they stayed together until one of them died. Why? Well, because he loved her enough to purchase her out of her own sin. I mean, once he did that, how on earth could she possibly do anything but love him back? How, how could she not spend every day thanking him for the way he rescued her? How could she not want to give her life to him? 
when I think about what God did for me, I, I can't help but feel the same way. <laughs> he gave his only son for me. How can I, I not offer my life back? Even when I don't feel like it. Even when I have to love out of discipline. Even when I serve only out of obedience. Well, today we get the chance to remember that sacrifice that God made for us, that Jesus made for you and me through the taking of communion. Uh, we're going to have a chance to do that. You can do it in your own time in just a minute. The band's going to play a song. And there's two tables up here in the front. There's two in the back. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to take communion with us. You don't have to be a part of this church. Um, but we do ask that you be a follower of Christ to do that. Um, you'll pick up the cup and you'll notice there are two. The bread is on the bottom. The juice is on the top. You'll take the bread first and then you'll take the juice second. And I just want to show you what Scripture says about this. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul is writing about communion and he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what we're going to do today. But Paul goes on. We don't talk about this all the time. But in verse 27, he continues. He says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. And as I was thinking about uh, the way we set this up today, I just know that there's some people in here, some um, marriages in here that are struggling. And, and maybe you're followers of Christ and, and still um, your marriage is struggling. Maybe you haven't had Christ at the center. Uh, maybe there's something that happened this morning that you need forgiveness for. Maybe there's something that happened this weekend and you feel guilty about it. And there's something that's sitting there between you and your spouse, between you and your fiance, between you and your family. Maybe there's something that's holding you back from experiencing everything that God has for you. And so what's going to happen in just a minute, I'm going to pray and I'm going to step down off the stage. You're welcome to come get communion anytime after that. But if you've got something in your heart that's hindering you, that's holding back your relationship with Christ, maybe you need to sit and pray for a minute. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness. Maybe you need to apologize. Maybe you need to pray and ask God to work in your heart, to, to give you the strength to go love somebody, to go show love once again. Do that, get that cleared up before you come and take of the bread and the cup. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful um, for the sacrifice you made for us, that you showed us love out of discipline, uh, even when we were unlovable, God, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, a death that we deserved. And we thank you that we're the beneficiaries of that today, that those of us who are in Christ that have made that decision to follow you and make you Lord of our lives, that we know that we've got the promise of eternal life. And that today we just uh, partake of communion. We drink of the blood and, and eat your body until, until you come back, God. And we are just so thankful for that, um, that we get to remember that sacrifice today. But Lord, for those of us who have something that's just holding us back, would you show us that in the next few minutes? Would you help us to clear that up? God, we pray to you that we could be forgiven, that we could uh, have new life in Christ. God, I just pray for the people in this room, the marriages in this room that don't have Christ at the center. I pray that something that we said today, something that we sang today or over these last three weeks will make them reconsider how their marriages come together. God, would you help 
funnel them on a path, put them on a path to put you at the center of their marriage. God, that's what we need. Lord, I pray for the people in the room who are, who are hurting today, whether they're single or divorced or widowed, God, that, that you would be all that they need. And that even as they're searching for that partner or maybe they've given up, God, that you would help them to know that you are more than enough. God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. Pray these things in Jesus' name.